Connor Joseph Donnan is a doctoral candidate in the history department at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his Bachelor of Arts in History from Ulster University in Ireland. Afterward, Connor moved to the United States where he obtained a master's degree in historical studies from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Connor's current research at the University of Pennsylvania focuses on labor and immigration in 19th and 20th century America. Connor has always had a strong commitment to public engagement and conflict resolution. Before attending Penn, Connor was a conflict resolution volunteer at Corrie Mila in Northern Ireland and a community volunteer at Quaker Cottage. He worked tirelessly to promote pathways to peace in Northern Ireland and received the United Nations Peace Day Community Medal from the mayor of Belfast in 2013. Connor has also worked on presidential campaigns of Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders. Connor brought his activism to his profession as a historian by working as a board member of the Irish Railroad Workers Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, developing a historical video game and appearing on podcasts for the United States National Parks Service Heritage Area and Life FM Radio. Connor is also one of the newest members of the board of directors for someone to tell it to. Connor, we warmly welcome you to our podcast today. It's really good to have you join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, big fan of the podcast, as you guys know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Connor. So today was supposed to be a pretty special day in your life. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what was supposed to happen today for everyone who is listening and what are your plans from here? <laughs> uh, well, today was supposed to be my wedding day. I'm supposed to get married in about three hours from now, uh, back home in Ireland in the general post office, which is one of the coolest buildings in the entire country. Uh, we had about 150 people uh, flying from America or going from Belfast, my home, to, to Dublin. Uh, and then around mid-March, uh, with the pandemic stuff breaking out, we just we got emails from wedding venues and everybody, and they were saying, hey, we, we have to cancel your wedding. And that was very difficult. Uh, my fiance was like, she's a doctor, and she... She was saying, well, let's see how things develop. Maybe we'll be able to get there by, uh, by May. And then by the end of March, I was like, Leah, we have, to, we have to cancel or postpone this wedding. It's not really canceled. I was like, we have to postpone this wedding because everyone else has to worry about flight refunds and hotels and all of that stuff. So we've got to get this done. So, yeah, today I was supposed to marry my beautiful fiance, Leah, and I suppose now she has another year to reconsider. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't imagine anything you'd rather be doing today than hanging out with us. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is, this is perfect. It's uh, exactly what I envisioned when I envisioned today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it, it's not what you planned, but uh, we're glad to be able to share part of this day with you. Connor, as you mentioned earlier, you grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. 
And we believe that you have a very riveting story about your life there, and especially during the period called the Troubles. We'd love for you to talk about what the Troubles were and, and then how they impacted your life. Okay, yeah. Uh, so that's perfect. The Troubles is sort of this, it's a weird name for, I always tell people, the Troubles is a weird name for a war because uh, it doesn't sound like a war, right? Uh, the Troubles sounds to me like, oh, we were, you know, we couldn't get down the stairs. I was having a bit of trouble there or something. But uh, <laughs> essentially, essentially, the Troubles was a 30-year conflict in, the, in Northern Ireland uh, started in the late 60s, sort of ended in, in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and it was between Irish nationalists who tended to be Catholic and um, British Unionists who tended to be Protestant as well as actual British armed forces. Um, so... The conflict, like I said, it lasted 30 years and it started essentially because in the 1920s, Ireland was partitioned off and Northern Ireland was created in a way that it would be predominantly Protestant British people, but they still had a sizable ethnically Irish Catholic population. And so the one of the founders of uh, of Northern Ireland, the state, you know, he, he described it as a Protestant state for a Protestant people, which meant in many ways, uh, Irish Catholics had less access to housing, less access to jobs and education, um, and uh, places that were predominantly, rep predominantly Irish Catholic in, in uh, population ended up with a majority British Unionist elect like elected uh, officials. And so after Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, a lot of Irish people, including John Hume and Bernadette Dublin and, and those guys got heavily influenced by the rhetoric and the ideas of the civil rights movement. So they, they, they tried to obtain the same level of citizenship as uh, as the British Protestants, and which is interesting when you think about it, because the troubles essentially in the end become about the IRA wanting to be part of the United Ireland. But the civil rights movement really started for the most part with Irish Catholics asking the Protestant administration and the British government, like, if you're going to call us British, we want to have all of the same rights as someone who is British. You know, and so essentially uh, a, a series of different events happened during the civil rights movement. One of them was uh, br the British Army uh, shot a group of protesters in Derry, which led to 14 people being killed. And they said that they, the protesters had guns and that the protesters were in the IRA. 2000s, uh, the British government comes out and said, in the 2000s, the British government came out and said, actually, that wasn't true. And we essentially covered up 
the military murdering innocent civilians. Uh, and that's really when, at that point, the IRA had essentially been non-existent and there was writing on walls in places like Derry that said stuff like, I, I ran away, which is what they were saying, IRA is I ran away. Uh, and in my own neighborhood in Clonard, we had a series of violent events um, that led to many people in my neighborhood saying we need to actually build a new refurnished, rebranded IRA, which is one word is sort of traditional provisional IRA that we now call the IRA comes from. Uh, and so over the course of the next 30 years from the late 60s into the 90s, you get this incredibly violent conflict between uh, the British armed forces and Protestant unionists who consider themselves British in their militia against Irish Catholic communities and the Irish Catholic paramilitary of the different factions of the IRA. And so that claims 3,500 lives, which is, and around 40 odd thousand injured. And that like, again, that in, in a lot of ways, it doesn't sound like a huge number in somewhere like America where, you know, you have over 300 million, nearly 400 million people. But if you were to times the population out into an American size, it would be about 600,000 people. That's essentially a low estimate of what you guys had on your civil war. Uh, and so it, impact, it impacted everyday life. There was a, during the 60s, they built a wall, which they called the, the Peace Wall. Uh, and by they, it's the sort of British establishment, establishment and the Protestant government built this Peace Wall that was about 40 foot high. It was in my back garden when I was growing up. And it was to separate Protestants from Catholics. And if you go there today, you'll see that those walls still exist. And basically they could shut down the, the walls at any point in the day to stop the communities from being able to interact with each other. And, uh, you know, I think one of the psychological impacts of a peace wall, uh, this barrier keeping you from the other side, as we would call them, is that the other side becomes imaginary. You don't really know who the other side is, you know, and so you're okay with, you know, throwing stones or people throwing petrol bombs or those types of things over walls because those people don't really exist in your mind. I mean, you know that they're there, but they like they're they're not people in that sense. So like when I was younger, I was sleeping in my i lived in a bungalow with my mom and my brother and in the middle of the night we got uh told to get out of the house because someone had thrown a petrol bomb onto our roof and you know like our roof was like sort of catching fire and so the whole community came out to try and put that out and the interesting thing for me about that is that the people who threw that probably didn't think that it was a single mother and her two young kids in there. Like it wasn't to them. There was, there was no person, you know? Did you ever get hurt? Um, specifically, I, I have been like, I was walking past 
is really interesting again in this point is that the community that I lived in was one of the most impoverished communities in the country and actually in 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 parts of Europe for most of Western Europe so one in two people in the area lived in poverty uh, there weren't a lot of options for young people and so one of the things that young people would do when they were bored is actually just go up to the gates where the wall ended to start riots and it wasn't really an ideological thing or or a political thing in a sense it was more of just a we're bored and this is something to do type of thing which is weird to tell people but that's sort of the case so one day i was walking past particularly in the july period when the uh there's this um orange order march which is like a, a sort of uh protestant marching band who celebrates the victory of uh king william of orange that contentiously marches through catholic neighborhoods uh and so in july the tension rises real high and so one day i was um walking past the riot and uh the i just saw like something flying out from the sky and people saying like like people started running and so i sort of got pushed to the ground in the running and uh was hit with what is then a nail bomb so it's sort of like this is an explosive bomb that shoots nails out uh but luckily i wasn't like majorly injured i have scars from on my knees a little bit but that was sort of it uh so i had been injured but i didn't like lose a limb or a life which you know in those days wasn't uncommon you know so i got very lucky in that sense uh but we had had uh people who you know were injured by uh plastic bullets that were shot at them from the british army or what my cousin was shot with a a water cannon which is like it sounds like a really fun thing everything sounds lovely when it like <laughs> bullets, you know, like don't sound that bad. Uh, I just imagine Nerf guns when you think of something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and a water cannon. You know. Meanwhile, I'm I'm sitting in my my son's bedroom and he's got a whole wall full of Nerf guns. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, a water cannon sounds fun, but this is essentially a tank with a giant hose that just shoots into like protest movements and stuff. And so my my cousin was hit with a water cannon once and it basically it, it like knocked him out but uh you know people were injured fairly regularly one time i was playing football with my friend um and he he like looked up at the sky and he's like what is that and then it just like a rock literally just hit him in the face like someone had thrown a rock over the wall and while we were playing football and it just hit him uh, so it wasn't uncommon for people to to be injured or, uh, you know, a lot of people worried about, you know, going anywhere that wasn't in our community because we were worried about what would happen if you went anywhere else. I think it's fascinating that your observation, and I think it's very, very true and correct, that because of the wall, that neither you on your side or the people on the other side could really envision who was on the other side and and so therefore you really weren't real yeah. and and so 
it's very easy to literally throw bombs uh, and figuratively throw bombs, verbal verbal bomb, bombs, and 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 have attitudes and feelings about one another without having any clue who one another was. And it just says a lot about our when we are separate from one another, when we can't engage with one another, when we can't listen to one another, when we can't talk with one another, when um, we can't see one another, how we demonize one another. And I think you, that that's in a very, a very uh, significant understanding of what that kind of separation can do to our relationships and to to one to, to one another yeah i think that you you're very right like i said i don't blame the people who threw stuff over in our house when we were younger or even hit my friend or anything like that because like i don't think that they could have envisioned people at the other side and what was interesting for me much later was when i got into my teens and the peace movement started I met this young fellow called William, which is a very, very uh, like um, ethnically unionist Protestant name back home. Like, you know, usually like an Irish person like me called Connor, like that's a dead giveaway that you're an Irish person. Uh, where, like, <laughs> where like William is essentially the, the same thing where like something like my little brother being called Dan, for example, like Dan is, is, you know, sort of anyone could be Dan because it's like biblically neutral, that type of stuff. Uh, but um, so I met this kid, William, and William was really fascinating to me because he, when I met him, we hung out for a few months and we're, we're still close friends now. But then like I went to his house once uh, and he literally lived like on the other side of the wall. Like he was one of the people who would have been on the street adjacent to my street, you know? Wow. Uh, so like, I was like, wow, like this is literally someone from the other side of the wall. Uh, and my street had the wall in it because my street, when it, in the 60s where I lived, well, I wasn't there in the 60s, but when, 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 where I, like the location in which I lived in the 60s uh, was a neutral ground street. So Protestants would live on that street and Catholics would live on that street. And it was sort of like a neutral zone. Uh, and they built the wall in there and cut Cooper Street off from what then became the, the other side was Cooper Way. And the, the two, like that, that, the wall just went through that sort of neutral ground street. And it changes, I think, like you said, uh, there's not much dialogue between people who live on other sides of walls. But even other stuff like the closest ice cream shop to me was at the other side of the wall. But I never would have went to an ice cream shop at the other side of the wall because that was dangerous. Uh, you know, so like stuff like that, like still impacts people. My generation less so, but like my mom's generation, like they see the wall as a safety net and they don't want the wall to ever come down. You know, uh, a lot of people, but my generation are more willing to go across, willing to make friends on the other side. And that's because we grew up sort of at the end of the conflict and into the peace. So we were like the peace babies where, you know, my parents 
or my grandparents who were born in the you know the 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 60s or the 30s or something who knew a full 30 years of conflict uh they had like a different vision of of you know how the peace would be achieved and this type of stuff and it was really interesting for me too because i was on a very weird side of the conflict in that as i said before i lived in one of the most nationalist uh pro ira communities in 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 the country it was like us in south Armagh. And uh, at the same time, my grandmother was a Protestant convert to Catholicism. So her, her uncles and her cousins were all like very devout British Protestants who uh, some of them were in Protestant paramilitaries and like wouldn't talk to my grandma because she married into an Irish Catholic family. And, you know, so it was really my family had the conflict themselves too, which was fascinating. Connor, we obviously have this love, this joint love for the, the country of Ireland. And we've spent time there. We've mentioned that in previous podcast episodes. And even just last week, we were talking with somebody else trying to put into words what the country is like, just when we were there driving the countryside and I think the word that we kept coming back to is just peaceful and, and serene and yet Ireland has this long long history of such immense persecution and we'd like for those who are listening who know nothing about Ireland's history maybe you could just kind of talk about what Ireland's history has looked like even prior to the troubles yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the fascinating things about Irish culture and Ireland in general, which I think you guys found when you were there, is that for a people with such a dark history, they tend to be some of the most uh, welcoming and joking people that you will meet. Uh, because, and I think I say to people all the time, you know, like uh, when you grow up around, uh, stuff like the troubles you you develop humor uh, around other things that maybe don't seem as significant but I mean going back to Irish history you know we're talking sort of what many will claim is 800 years of oppression uh, from the British I mean British people first arrived in Ireland 800 years ago, the stronghold in which they eventually get uh, doesn't really happen until the 1600s. But in the 1600s, you're talking, and in the 1500s, to be fair, uh, you're talking about um, stuff like Oliver Cromwell, who just sorts out, basically, he goes from a civil war in England to conquering Ireland. And he uh, basically, he goes in and he starts uh, this conquest in, uh, in 1649, ends in 1653. And it's estimated that he killed up to a quarter of the population. His army killed a quarter of the Irish population themselves which is like way more uh, per capita than like the famine, which I'll talk about later. But uh, so he invaded Ireland and engaged in this brutal campaign against the Irish 
who had supported many members of the, the, the sort of the, the British crown against the, the English parliamentarians, which is what Cromwell ran. But they, they like hang people's heads on, on, uh, on pikes to like let people know they see Drogheda uh, and uh, burn people who were hiding in churches. They burn the churches to the ground. And so Cromwell sort of pulls in the 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 uh, the British, what is rapidly becoming the English and British uh, colonial infrastructure into Ireland, and he conquers Ireland. Like I said, there are mass casualties throughout uh, this sort of sieges in Drogheda, Limerick, and Galway and starvation because they they literally cause famine there and from there what you get is laws put in place that ban the irish language ban catholic schooling uh these these sort of penal laws that are built in to stop um the growth of the catholic community and then you get like the plantation of Ulster, which uh, is quite famous, uh, of sending like Scottish Presbyterians, especially into like Northern Ireland, what is today Northern Ireland, but was and still is the the region of of Ulster. And in Ulster, these planters come in and they take most of the land from the uh, sort of Irish Catholic population. And Cromwell himself basically pushes the. Have you ever heard the expression "beyond the pale"? Yes. Yeah, and so yes. that that comes from Ireland, uh, which is Dublin. Around that area is the pale, and Cromwell basically wants all of the Catholic population out of the pale, and so he tells them that they can either go to hell or to Connaught, and Connaught is like out west. So they kick all of the sort of indigenous Irish, or they try to push that Irish Catholic community out west uh, in this massive colonial project. And so that's where the term beyond the pale comes from, because Dublin was the pale. Uh, well, around Dublin, not just Dublin. Uh, and it's the epicenter of this growing English and eventually British um, empire. And so you get people routed, basically taken off their land and brought in and their land given to uh, landlords and and conquests uh, like uh, basically conquerors who who are not native to the country and often don't even spend any time in the country uh, and then you in, taxes are imposed on the Catholic population that makes them pay tithes to the Church of England so they're literally paying tithes to a church that is not their own uh, and so that builds up a lot of resentment in Ireland due to being displaced from your land, being forced to get rid of the language, which is essentially banned, uh, you know, having to pay for a church that's not your own. And so from the 1600s to the 1700s, these situations are getting worse. And then in the 1800s, Ireland is brought in, I, basically, the Irish have a rebellion in 1798. Uh, it is quickly squashed um, by the, the British. And then in, in the 1800s, they pass the Act of Union, which brings Ireland into 
the Union and sort of takes away their own version of Parliament, which mm. was heavily Protestant anyway, uh, and places them under this sort of direct rule of the British in Westminster. And under those policies with the British in Westminster, we end up having a major famine in the 1840s that kills over a million people and has two million people uh, flee, flee the country, essentially. Um, and during this famine, the population of Ireland was eight million. And it never has, it's never grown back to eight million since then. And so it's this sort of darker history of famine and violence that keeps going on. And then, and, and then eventually in 1916, <laughs> you have a rebellion and uh, the 1916 Easter Rising, uh, in which uh, a bunch of sort of Irish, uh, last, this sort of last gasp of the Fenian movement and the start of the Gaelic revival movement sort of combined to create a rebellion in 1916. And they more or less take control of Dublin for a couple of days while the British are fighting in a war because the sort of old slogan of this time was England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Uh, and so <laughs> they, 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 they're like, well, they're distracted by the Germans. So we'll, we'll hit them while they're distracted. We'll take the country back. And uh, the plan doesn't go exactly well. And eventually the rebellion is put down in a very brutal fashion, the British send a gunboat up the River Liffey and basically blow the whole city to the ground. And, uh, and then all of the leaders, you know, most people at the time weren't really in support of the rebellion, but all of the leaders are executed in like a very brutal fashion and that ch changes the tide of the rebellion. So uh, James Connolly, who was one of the leaders is injured during the battle and is going to die anyway and he can't stand for his execution so they tie him to a seat and shoot him in 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 a seat and joseph plunkett who is uh engaged to his fiance grace gifford has his last request be that he can marry his fiance and so he marries his fiance and then a few hours later is executed uh and so that sort of changes the tide and people are saying, okay, well, like it's okay to punish them. And it, but like, this is going overboard. And so the Irish, uh, the, the rising leaders end up successfully getting people to their cause. Uh, and that leads to the rise of Sinn Féin who win the 1918, 1918 election and declare independence. Uh, and then we have a, a war of independence between the the British and the Irish. And once that is settled, uh, we have a, a, a civil war right after the war of independence between the pro-treaty Irish who have accepted the end of the war on the condition that Ireland has dominion status, which isn't a free independent republic, but they see as a stepping stone to that. And the, and the anti-treaty section who um, see sort of the treaty as giving up the country and dividing the country because Northern Ireland is created out of accepting the end of the war too. And uh, it goes to there. 
and so it's a it's a violent history and it's one of colonial uh oppression and imperialism that you see sort of around the world later and what's interesting about this is that if you look at in my own research uh on irish people and, and indigenous populations in america like uh native american nations you find that a lot of the people who are originally colonizing america are the same people who were colonizing ireland like you can literally see the same guys appear on like land documents uh so uh, people call ireland a testing ground for the british empire um and so you the, you you have this bloody history violent history that impacts ireland i think every day psychologically but also uh it um it makes them now some of the unfortunate situations of that are that some of the uh irish writers and and plays and stuff that we have like are known for that darkness like Bram stoker in uh dracula or oscar wilde in the picture of dorian gray or many of these irish writers are 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 known for dark writing and uh you know so my fiance will say Connor, why are we watching this Irish movie? All Irish movies are depressing. And I was like, well, because 800 years of oppression does something to you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, as you know, we're both huge fans of history. And I recently read The Immortal Irishman by Timothy Egan. Oh, yeah. Uh, per your recommendation. And it was just so helpful for me to, to learn more about Ireland's history after having visited there and just knowing almost nothing sadly about the country at that point in time and yeah just learning more about this oppression that that um you know your people have lived with for for such a long long time and and learning some of the statistics as you mentioned earlier just to, you know i didn't know that a million people had died during the great famine of the 18 you know the mid 1800s yeah. uh, it's just uh it's just horrifying and it's and it's also it's just impossible to even imagine if you were to go visit now and see this beautiful, again, beautiful, serene countryside to just envision what was not very, not, not too far in the distant past. Um, you know, and we, we've often said in, in some of the, the sermons we've given, we've talked about, you know, history and, and the importance of just learning from it that otherwise we're, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. As the famous uh, quote says, so uh, I think it's just helpful for, for those who are listening and for us uh, to, to know a little bit more about Ireland's history as, as we talk about, you know, some of your work going forward. Yeah, and I think you're totally right about understanding history and what understanding history means. Like recently, not too long ago, uh, when the Brexit debate was happening, which is, seems like a million years ago considering this pandemic now, uh, <laughs> There was a discussion about um, with among the British about like how do we get the Irish to agree to this border dispute because one of the reasons we have a peace agreement is that being in the European Union essentially means that there's no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and so those two states don't have to have a separation which allows the island to be one island for the most part. I mean there's still currency changes and stuff like that but 
for the most part, it's a seamless transition into one Ireland and Brexit with the UK leaving the European Union and forcing Northern Ireland to leave the European Union because again, Northern Ireland actually voted to stay in the European Union but are being forced out by the English and Welsh vote essentially because Scotland also wanted to stay in the European Union. Uh, they, they would essentially they would have to make a hard border which is against the spirit of the peace agreement that I grew up with. It's literally uh, infringing on this peace agreement in, in many ways. Um, and the interesting thing was a conservative commentator, she said to them, or she said on the news, uh, well, we'll tell, like, if the Irish don't do what we say, we can threaten them with food shortages, essentially. Mm. It's like, wow, wow. This is 2016. We have, like, literally so much literature on, on, the, on the famine, like a famine that like was caused by a potato blight, but facilitated by your like the British administration's inability to care about Irish people, and you know even the the the, the head of the Treasury at the time, Charles Trevelyan, says that the sad thing about this famine is it'll kill a million people, but that's not enough people, you know. Uh, so there are people like you know. So this lady is is saying we'll threaten them with food shortages to a country that has literally had a famine based on the colonial power that like has been like that the British had used in the 1840s, you know? Uh, and I was like, how can you not learn that this is a, not the, the right thing to say? <laughs> well, I remember that when we um, were in Ireland and then we're headed into Northern Ireland, it was literally the middle of the night. You remember that Tom? Oh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and there were, well, yeah, I remember about... it. Cause I was awake. You were asleep. No, 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 no. I actually was awake. And, and I, I realized, but I, 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 I was, I actually did wake up and, um, Connor, you talk about the open borders, and there was the, the border was totally open. There was no anything to indicate that we had just entered Northern Ireland, except that on our phones. That's yeah, how, I, that's how we knew. Got a text mm -hmm. message on my phone saying, you know, you have just you've just entered, you know, you know, Northern Ireland. The 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 UK, you know, the British. Yeah. It was a mention about Britain and everything, and 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 so that's how that's how we knew that we had gone gone to the country. So. You anticipated a question we were going to ask about post-Brexit and what it does mean for the country and for these open borders and for the very free-flowing exchange between Ireland and Northern Ireland, as well as other European countries. So how do you think this will impact Northern Ireland, your home country? Uh, you know, will particularly do you think it will impact it for for the worse well <laughs> yeah i think yeah uh, that's a good question and one i've tried to grapple with a lot as i i often write for a think tank in philadelphia about irish policy and one of the things i've questioned a lot is sort of what's going to happen with brexit and i think the long the, the short answer of like what happened is that the the english just didn't think it through they didn't they don't know anything about ireland really uh they're not like well educated on the subject and they were just more interested in sort of 
getting rid of immigrants and having some sort of return to the imperial power that they were, uh, because, you know, the sort of make Britain great again rhetoric of Boris Johnson and those guys, you, you, you have to ask then, okay, but, you know, when was Britain great? Uh, and what, what they mean is like pre, you know, World War II when we had an empire, really pre-World War I, but like pre-World War II when we had an empire and we were able to trade with everybody and we were, you know, the kings of the sea. And so I think that they were more thinking of this sort of English nationalism uh, situation and not really about Ireland. And one of the things that is fascinating is that the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, the that that peace agreement that ended the troubles that allowed me to work in peace of work for, you know, the, the predominantly or the first five or six years of my child or of my teenage years into my early twenties, um, was that uh, the like was that it was underpinned by the fact that Ireland and Britain were both in Europe. So that allowed essentially no border. Like you said, there are little things that would tell you you crossed, but you wouldn't even notice them. So changing from, from miles uh, per hour, which the British use, to the European standard, um, or changing, uh, or the, the big thing is that your phone, say you have O2 as a common phone in, in the UK and Ireland uh, company, uh, so if you had O2 in the UK, when you go to, when you cross the border, it'll say you are now entering O2 Ireland, right? And so that's how you know that you've crossed the border. So it's little things like that. But for the most part, you can come and go, do what you want, do as you please. Uh, and if your argument on the English side is that you don't want immigrants and you, you want to have more control over trade and you want to leave this Eurozone, you, you have to have a hard border. There's no way around it. Like, Boris Johnson was coming up with all these magical solutions of having satellites in the air that would shoot down and see what's in cars and blah, 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 blah. We don't have technology like that. That's just not possible. And even if you did, there's no way to stop a border. Uh, like you have, they have to have a border, which like completely undermines the Good Friday Agreement. And the other thing is, and this is from a perspective of someone who has been an Irish Catholic in, in Belfast, you know, is that one of the things that we had in place in the Good Friday Agreement was that the British had to adhere to the human rights conventions of the European Union. And so that, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but for people from my community uh, who had been in, arrested indefinitely without trial and without evidence uh, on a policy called internment, or, or had Margaret Thatcher tell her soldiers that she had a policy of shoot to kill. So if you suspect this person is in the IRA, don't try and take him in, just shoot him and kill him. Uh, like the European Human Rights Convention is, is what we believe keeps us safe. Uh, like no one trusts the British government to keep the Human Rights Convention safe when there's no European Union because why the track record is not good, you know? Uh, so it's an interesting break in that sense too, unfortunately. And, you know, you would like to hope the best and hope that, you know, the British would maintain a lot of the human rights issues and those types of things. But 
a lot of older people, especially who grew up in a time where they were falsely imprisoned or imprisoned without trial, uh, would um, would be distrustful, I think. And I think there's a, a, a fair reason to be distrustful, unfortunately. Uh, and so you've got that, and then you've got this border that would, you know, potentially uh, make Ireland a very separate, like make Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland two very separate states. Like there's no real way around that. That would be difficult, especially for people who live on the border, like people who live in Armagh, uh, Monaghan, like those sort of border states, like then having to, to deal with not being able to drive five miles up the road anymore. Uh, that, that type of stuff will bring a lot of tension I don't know necessarily if it'll bring a lot of violence, but people have predicted that. Uh, and there has been a little bit of a rise in pro-Irish nationalist paramilitary activity, but not what you find is that the actual population of Northern Ireland does not support a return to war. No one really wants that. But you know, one of the things that I can tell you from history and that I can tell you from personal experiences is the tide can change in an instance, you know, like it only takes one or two bad events to, to change public opinion completely. And the other thing that is fascinating is that Ireland is getting wealthier, especially the Republic is getting wealthier uh, due to being sort of the poster child of the European Union now. Um, while Northern Ireland is not gaining as much wealth and it's not expected to benefit from Brexit, so they'll actually lose money in that sense and that's been really fascinating but it has definitely increased tensions i think uh the pandemic has sort of decreased some of the tension a little bit i think in that the, a lot of the unionists who consider themselves british tried to follow uh boris johnson's covid policies and then realized that he wasn't really uh effectively dealing with the COVID-19 issue. Uh, and then in the Republic, we, uh, the Prime Minister Leo, he, he is a doctor and has dealt relatively effectively with those policies. And so they quickly realized that they had to follow the Ireland suit and not the British suit. And the other thing is just that, you know, a pandemic doesn't respect made up borders. So <laughs> you have to have an all Ireland uh, we have that all Ireland uh, agenda for stuff like that, and it also undermines those institutions because it's very hard to have an all Ireland agricultural policy and an all Ireland tourist policy, and like which we do have institutions that do all Ireland institutions that work north and south, but you can't really have an all Ireland agricultural policy if one person is adhering to the European standards and the other person is not, you know, and so it'll be weird, but. We, I think COVID in a way shows you that we do need to be dealing with things in, a, in an all island fashion. And hopefully that'll help out a little bit in easing tensions. We've, I think you've heard, uh, at least you've heard me talk previously about my uh, love for the band U2. And I, several years ago, I had the chance of hearing U2 live in concert and it was shortly after 9-11, I'm from northern New Jersey, and I would go into New York City and, and hear live shows, and, and I got to hear you two right after 9-11, just a couple months later, 
at Madison Square Garden. And it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life, for sure, uh, where they, they literally had um, a lot of service workers up on stage playing their instruments with them uh, for, for those who, who had lost friends and family members and just this powerful experience. And two things really stood out to me that night. One is they, they sang the song Bloody Sunday, which I'd love to ask you about. Um, because you had referenced this uh, this this horrible uh, incident that had occurred, uh, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And the second thing is um, one of my absolute favorite U two songs is this the song is called Psalm forty, and um, it comes from the Psalm forty. U two for those of you who are listening, uh, they needed one more song on one of their albums, and Bono just happened to open up the Bible and he turned to Psalm 40 and then put this, this, um, this priceless Psalm to, to, um, to, to music. And in the, the, the Psalm and in the song, he uses this refrain, how long must we sing this song? And he, he repeats it over and over and over again. And here at Madison Square Garden that night, he was singing it. Everybody's just weeping because, you know, how long must we sing this song of terrorism and oppression and, you know, just these horrible things that humans can do to one another. And it was just this uplifting experience. And I'd love for you to talk just about what does peace and reconciliation look like? And how how long must we sing this song? So I'd love (laughs) for you to talk about those two things, if you could. Yeah. Um, So I did reference Bloody Sunday earlier a little bit um, when I was talking about the mass shooting and the protest and basically what is now called bloody sunday or some people refer to it as the Bogside massacre which the Bogside is part of Derry, which is where it occurred happened in 72 and basically british soldiers shot uh 26 unarmed civilians in a protest and 14 people died from that 13 right away one from injuries later and obviously Bono being from Ireland, not necessarily from the North and not necessarily involved in the conflict, but it here the news famously wrote uh, Bloody Sunday, which is, uh, I think, one of their best, uh, best songs by a mile. Uh, but in the, fact, uh, actually, I think I, I read a Rolling Stone article that it was the 272nd all-time greatest songs on the 500 song list so just a a brave reference yeah yeah that that's amazing and he he has bono has a very activist nature in him as you guys know obviously and so yeah and so basically what happened anyway was that this massacre happened and and the, the the civilians were blamed for being you know violent having guns all this stuff and this inquiry came out called the uh, Savile Inquiry, which, um, uh, or this, uh, the Widgery Inquiry came out first, and the Widgery Inquiry basically said, you know, this um, this was, you know, a bunch of potential terrorists protesting, and we have to, you know, they were bordering on, uh, on, on violence anyway, and, you know, we had to act, you know. Uh, so that was sort of what happened originally. And then there was a 12 year investigation, uh, by what was called the Savile Inquiry after Widgery and the Savile Inquiry comes out in 2010. So 72 to 2010. 
Uh, and in seven in seventy two, they're saying these guys were were violent protesters with guns and and this type of jazz. And then in two thousand ten, the Savile Inquiry comes out and says that it was the killings were completely unjustified and unjustifiable, and uh, that the soldiers knowingly put false accounts into the reports. And so the Prime Minister of 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 Britain at this time, David Cameron in 2010, has to apologize for a massacre that happened in, in 1972, which had caused a lot of resentment because people knew, you know, one of my friends, one a member of his family was, was one of the victims of this shooting, uh, who I met in university years later. And uh, he, um, his family were always very, you know, upset about what was uh the unjustified killing of one of their family members obviously but also just the cover-up of this killing and so that's a lot Sunday, of years in between time yeah, when it yeah. occurred to an apology yeah i mean it's what like 40 almost 40 something 40 years. years yeah yeah and so uh it was a big deal for for irish catholics at that time because this was an example of of British uh, brutality and their willingness to cover this up. And it's sort of stuck in the cultural imagination, which is why Bono has this really great song. Um, and that's like a hard thing to deal with because when I, when the peace movement came in, in uh, 1998, really, really kicking off in the 2000s, and I start uh, my work with Carmilla and the Quakers, uh, basically, cross-community work in the Quakers, which was uh, bringing uh, young Protestant people and young Catholic people together in a safe, neutral environment where they could all hang out. And the Quakers were were respected for the work they did with uh, people who had, you know, who had family issues, people who were impoverished, all of these things, that they were allowed to go to both sides. There were certain organizations that were respected enough that they could go in and out. And Carmilla and the Quakers were both those. Uh, and so um, when I was working at Carmilla and at the Quakers, you know, we would, one of the things we'd be trying to do is take people out of the mindset that you're talking about, like the song that they sing. You know, how long, you know, we're talking, taking people out of this song that they've been singing, the story that they've been told their entire life, and trying to have them sit down and, and look at each other as as just people, you know, and and say, look, like this is a person he identifies in this way, but he is also just a person, or this is a person and she identifies in this way, and she is also just a person. And, and uh, you know, uh, what you found is we called it the, the seed program, because the idea is you would take young people, you would help them get to know people who weren't from their community, who were from the other side, so-called, and uh, have them be the seed that was planted in their community to actually say like, hey, like I have friends who are this and that and, and they are Catholic, they're Protestant and, and they're great people or this is one of my favorite things to do is to go on this project once a month for a weekend to hang out with these guys uh, and hope that that seed grows and influences people. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's definitely been like peace and reconciliation is 
is a difficult and worthwhile project for anyone who who wants to be involved in an organization like Carmilla or that. Uh, but one of the things that I really understood from my experience there and gained from my experience there is that a lot of the issues that were coming up in Ireland, and one of the reasons I became so interested in someone to tell it to at the same time when I came to America, was that a lot of the issues that I grew up with was just an inability to to empathize with another, like groups from the other side, and an, an inability to listen to like what may have been legitimate grievances, what may have been illegitimate grievances, depending on what the circumstances. But just being able to listen and treat people as human and as normal, uh, you know. And so, like I said, from that piecework at Carmula, I met my friend who lived at the other, literally the other side of the wall, and he and I became very close friends from that. Uh, and that was like fascinating to me because uh, we had grown up like less than a hundred feet apart from each other, you know. <laughs> but we'd never been able to know who the other person was. And he'd been told all of his stories and I'd been told all of my stories. And we, you know, so like little things just change. So like uh, the Irish flag is, is is green, white, and orange, as you guys know, it's it's the tricolor flag. And, uh, but Protestants were told the green is supposed to be Catholic and the white is supposed to represent some sort of unity, unity or peace. And then the, the orange rep, rep, representing Protestantism. Uh, but my friends who were Protestant were told that it was green, white, and gold, and that changes the the meaning because gold is not, you know, the color that mm. they identify with as, like, they're culturally, a lot of the Protestants are in, like, the orange order, or they, you know, talk about King William of Orange. So, you know, just the little stories, little changes, like, really matter, and if you're not able to think in a way that is empathetically or compassionately because you have been told these stories it's really difficult to you know to to break that down and that's why you know groups like someone to tell to teaching people about listening and compassion are so important in that sense you know and I, even outside of conflicts like I, with other things like increased polarization in america i tell people all the time like hey i've I've been down the road where we don't talk to people about what's going on and I've seen what that's like. It's not fun. You know, I'm like, I promise yeah. you, the, the, the best thing that you can do is have dialogue, uh, talk to people, listen to people, be compassionate. Uh, even if you think that they are, you know, angry conservatives or, or crazy leftists or whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, treating those people who you disagree with is uh, as human. And, and, and we even see this in, in like, if we go like biblically here, you know, Jesus literally says, oh, it's easy to love the people that you love. That, that's nothing, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what we need you to do is love the people that you don't love. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, from conflict resolution, one of the things that I think is that we have to try, even if it's extra hard, you know, to love the people who don't agree with us. And in doing so, that's what creates the better world is listening to people and being compassionate about it and loving people as if they are just people at the end of the day. It's a lot harder to love people that we don't know either. Yeah, exactly.
We'd like to take just a moment to thank our premier sponsor for the Someone to Tell It To podcast, the Wonders Found Thrift Shop in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are so grateful for their support, for their advocacy, for these messages that we share with you today and every day. So thank you. We also want to encourage you, if you are interested in helping to support these podcasts, you can do that yourself too by going to patreon.com and signing up and saying what you would like to do on a regular basis to help someone to tell it to continue these podcasts, to help them grow, and to reach more and more people around the world. Who are and have been some of the heroes uh, to you in your life? The people that they've you've known them personally, or people uh, you've known about from afar. You know, the the teachers, the politicians, artists, musicians, activists. Um, who poets? Who are those who have influenced you the most, and 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 why? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. It's hard because I I think you know. Most people were sort of a, a collection of the stories that we, you know, were told and we are built with sort of the people that we meet. I read a study once that said you are the combination of the five people that you talk to the most, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, and so for me, I mean, number one, then this is sort of the, the answer that most people give, but is 100% true, is my number one hero is, is my mom. Uh, she is a single mother, grew up with, uh, in poverty, had two kids when she was like first kid me at like 19, uh, and my little brother, four years later, she raised two kids on her own while dealing with, uh, diagnosed extreme depression. And she pushed us to take the opportunities that she wasn't given during the peace movement. And she also was one of the rare people uh, in 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 the world, I think, who really just doesn't care about your your background. Uh, as long as she thinks that you're nice or fun, she can she can hang out with anybody. Uh, and that really taught me to be more open to uh, other people and, you know, pushing me to, to go to school, pushing me to do all these other things. My mom was the number one. And then weirdly two separate people, uh, in, in terms of people who I've known, and then I'll go into like sort of the bigger, more abstract people, but people that I knew was Father Alec Reed, who was a priest in my monastery. Uh, I was, um, like I was an altar boy there for a little bit, but that's where I attended church growing up. And Father Alec was was like a, a temporary man from down south who came to uh, the north in like the early 60s. And just as he comes there, <laughs> the troubles break out. Uh, and Father Alec was, was the go-between between the SDLP, which is the nonviolent nationalist, um, uh, who were sort of more parliamentarily in. and then the uh, Sinn Féin who were also a political party but had stronger connections to the IRA and he was the go-between 
to help negotiate a ceasefire. And he was also to go between for the British. So the British, the moderate nationalists and the Irish Republicans all trusted Father Alec. He stopped along with Des Wilson, Father Des Wilson, the first hunger strike before the, the major hunger strike in the 80s in which uh, Bobby Sands and all those guys uh, unfortunately uh, passed away um, due to fighting for political prisoner status under Thatcher. Um, he was able to help stop the first one and he, he negotiated, helped negotiate peace in Ireland. And there's this really famous picture of him. I think if you guys ever look it up, it, it, uh, it's, it's called the, I mean, people, I don't know what, what it would be called. People just call it the corporal killings, uh, which two British corporals essentially were killed after, uh, mm -hmm. they, essentially what happened is, there was this major IRA funeral for um, some volunteers in the IRA who uh, were killed by the British Army. Uh, and then a unionist guy tried to go in and interrupt the funeral to, for, he was shooting and throwing grenades because he figured he could get the IRA uh, members who were at the funeral. Um, and obviously that it really enraged a lot of the Irish Catholic community because, you know, funerals are, you know, it should be sacred. It should be a time to mourn and they're fleeing for their lives there. And so uh, one of the issues comes up a lot later is these two British corporals sort of accidentally get caught in the mix uh, and they get brought out and they're executed. Um, and Father Alec Reed tries to resuscitate them and revive them. Uh, and there's this picture of him sitting over the body of the soldier trying to bring them back to life. Uh, and la later, what was interesting about that is what he said is that, like, that day he had just picked up, like, basically the first draft of the peace agreement to bring to, uh, from, from, from Jerry Adams to John Hume. So he literally is trying to revive these people who were killed in a violent conflict while holding the document for peace in his back pocket the entire time. And so Alec was one. And then at Carmilla, another guy who was a real big inspiration for me was actually a, uh, a Protestant minister called Ray Davey. And Ray was a World War II chaplain who uh, was captured by the Germans and imprisoned in Dresden. And while in prison in Dresden, the British bombed Dresden and like basically leveled the place. Uh, and so he watched the Germans and the British like, like basically engage in like incredible acts of cruelty and violence. And he decided that he was going to try to single-handedly stop war. Uh, and so he created Carmula as a peace and reconciliation center, which then during the troubles becomes like a major key to building peace. But he like was a powerhouse who like was, you know, respected by everybody, uh, friends with the Dalai Lama, you know, like he, he was just like this major peace advocate and like this incredible powerhouse. And so him and Alec, both of them, Father Alec and, and, and Ray Davey were both like these powerhouse ministers, preachers, uh, you know, which is very fascinating to me because today, especially with growing up as a Catholic, people are always saying to me like, oh, like the church or whatever. 
And it's odd because for me, all of the religious figures in my life, including yourselves, have all been, you know, positive, highly motivated, great people who are trying to change the world. And so I'll say, well, remember, like, just because there are people who do bad things because of religion does not mean that people who are religious are bad, right? Like, I've seen some of the most beautiful acts of humanity and humility, you know, come from Ray Davy or or Alec Reed or yourselves that, like, you know, don't normally uh, get credited for for doing such a thing. And so, sort of in the immediate, and then one of my other ones would have been my high school or my high school teacher, who I still talk to every day, uh, Mr. Watson, Lawrence Watson, because he was essentially. Uh, the person who pushed me to go to university and now in this PhD program and all of that jazz. And so those would be the personal ones. <laughs> all that jazz. <laughs> all that jazz. Yeah. <laughs> it's more than jazz. It's more think, than jazz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah. And, and then sort of in the more abstract sense, I was, I always really love, uh, learning about the civil rights movement. Um, I love Martin Luther King, but I really, really was fascinated by and uh, both him and Malcolm X and sort of Malcolm X's end of life transformation. Uh, and so they were really cool uh, sort of heroes of mine when I was younger. Uh, so there's a lot of murals to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in, in Belfast and in, in Northern Ireland in general. So they were very cool um, uh, people. And uh, yeah, there's like, in terms of uh, sort of the more um, famous examples, I think like, you know, those guys, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, recently because of you guys, I've been really turned on to uh, watching Mr. Rogers, which I'd never really seen that much of as a kid. Uh, and so I really enjoyed learning about, about him and I thought he was a fantastic person. I watched his documentary and it was incredibly shocking to me, uh, cause I was like, okay, but when, when is something bad going to happen here? You know, no one is this great. Uh, when is something bad going to happen? And then it turns out that he was just incredibly fantastic. Uh, and yeah, I think that I'm trying to imagine more of the major figures uh that i really like um, as you're as you're thinking about that today very appropriately is fred rogers day in the state of pennsylvania um it's been designated by our governor last year and so every year now on this date it uh he he is remembered and commemorated because he's a native son and mm. uh one of one of the one of the state's most but, well, sorry, most most wonderful, glorious um, citizens. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who are <laughs> listening and you're curious about 143 Day, actually, I just found out, though, I think, Michael, I think it was yesterday. Oh, was it because, yesterday? Yeah. Okay. I'm sad that we missed it. Uh, yeah, it would have been I, nice to publicize about it, but it was, it's the 143rd day okay. of every year. So it would have been last, uh, it would have been yesterday. Yesterday, Anyways, yesterday. sorry. For those who are yeah. listening, um, and this was discussed in the Fred Rogers documentary, is that uh, he weighed 143 pounds for most of his adult life, and he stayed the same weight, which is pretty remarkable. And the significance of 143 is the, the letter uh, I 
love you uh, based on the, the letters of the alphabet and the, where they fall in line. And so, you know, he, he took that very, very seriously. And so, yeah, as Michael mentioned, the governor had announced last year that it, that every uh, 143rd day of every year is going to be <laughs> That's uh, amazing. Fred Rogers. Day. And we'll yeah. remember it next week. We need to learn to count better. But, That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was so sad when I saw that on Twitter this morning that it was yesterday. I was like, how do we not? Well, I, not, I saw it this morning and thought, oh, they mean today. As about yeah. that, they, were, they were talking about yesterday. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that's such a cool, I mean, the discipline you have to have to do that. I could not weigh the same weight forever. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah. yeah, I mean, the only, yeah, my other figures that I really enjoy, like learning about, um, I read a really great biography on Ella Baker. And if you haven't read uh, on no. Ella Baker, the, the civil rights activist, she was she was like, um, I think also because of my mom in itself, one of the things that I really uh, look up to are, are women who changed the world. And so Ella Baker being one of those women, she was um, an American civil, civil rights activist. Um, and what she was really interesting for is that she didn't want a centralized infrastructure. Like she wanted a lot, a lot of, like she wanted young people to take control and she wanted, you know, uh, uh, young activists to have their voice heard and not to like look to her as just a leader, but to look to, you know, uh, to each other and to the, the community as a whole, which in the civil rights movement is like very um, unique because when you look at um, the civil rights movement, you, you think of, uh, Martin Luther King or of, of Rosa Parks or, uh, you know, major figures, but she, she was really this, this like incredibly, uh, strong, incredibly, uh, radical, like much more radical in her vision of democracy than most people and very grassroots activist, uh, so I think that she, like Ella Baker was a very cool, um, like if you haven't read her biography, I'll have to send you guys the, the biography because it was one of my favorite uh, book, history books that I've read in a while. Uh, I, I don't really, it's weird because I'm a historian, but I, I don't, and probably because I'm a historian, I don't really actually enjoy that many history books. <laughs> I have to like, <laughs> really be like oh this is like a good a good history book you know uh and so barbara ranzi wrote a book called ella baker and the black freedom movement and and her book was was amazing uh and so ella baker would be one and then yeah in irish history and bernadette devlin who i'd mentioned in the protest she was there uh during the civil rights movement in ireland she made friends with angela Davis in America um they were really cool like she was one of the young, she was the youngest elected MP in history at one point uh I think that's been broken now but she she was just like a uh like a fury activist like no one wanted to mess with uh no, no one wants to mess with Bernadette Dublin because she was just just a badass uh and uh, <laughs> you know 
and uh, and I think that you know one of the things that they did is they fought for what they believed is right. But the other thing that I think that they did was that they went and listened to other people who were having issues and tried to. And that's what I really respect about them. Like you know, uh, Angela Davis and uh, Bernadette Devlin becoming friends is an incredible story. Just because this is you know uh, someone who's really famous for sort of Irish nationalist movement, someone who's really famous for uh, like black power movements and, and uh, they, they end up developing this really strong friendship. And the only way that you can really see that is their willingness to see humanity and, and, and uh, be compassionate to other people, you know? Um, so I really respect those guys too, or the, the, those sort of strong women, especially in an age where you know, it was like the 70s and the 60s, you know, coming up when people were not friendly. I mean, still even today we see this, uh, but not as friendly to to women in politics even as we are today. And, you know, today we aren't always great about it either, as we've learned. Yeah, there's so many things that we could respond to there. I mean, I, I know for me, I, I read uh, Malcolm X's autobiography when I was in college, and that Oh my goodness, that that book really shaped my worldview significantly. Um, as you know, one of the things that Michael and I do, we've always made a commitment to be reading together since we first started, really since we first knew each other, um, you know, a decade ago or more. And one of the books that we've been rereading for the second time this year that we've made a commitment to is called The Book of Joy. And I think we've told you a little bit about it, but it's this week where uh, a writer brought together the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu for an entire week just to talk about the topic of joy for one of their 80th birthday birthday celebrations. And in the, the book, Richard Moore was talked about, and we're not sure if you've ever heard the name Richard Moore, but anyways, Richard Moore was shot with a rubber bullet between the eyes and became blind at ages nine and nine or 10. And he grew up and married and had two daughters. And he found the British soldier who had shot him and offered his forgiveness. And they became good friends. Both went to Dharmasala to teach Tibetans about forgiveness. And he was a hero of the Dalai Lama. And this occurred uh, during the Troubles. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the question I have for you, what's that? He got, it was coming out of like elementary school, essentially. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 And so just this remarkable story. But uh, I think we'd like to hear from you just to talk about the topic of forgiveness and how forgiveness plays such a significant role in reconciliation and, and, and peace. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, uh, I, I, I like the the easy questions like i see uh that's it that's <laughs> it <laughs> we're gonna throw you a curveball there and, and yeah <laughs> that one's gonna be well, tough I to think, hit yeah i think that on any side of a reconciliation and i tell you know people when we're doing reconciliation all the time is that uh everyone involved in the conversation has to be willing to to forgive uh, th that doesn't mean that you have to say that the person was justified or the actions were 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 fair or any of those types of things. But like with my own community back home and uh, 
I would like, I would constantly say to people like, okay, but what do we do if, if we don't forgive people, right? Like what, what is the next step? Do we just live in walled communities forever? You know, that's not a good step for me. And that's not like how I want people to live. Uh, and that's not how I think most people want to live. And so for me, uh, forgiveness is central and it's also, you know, uh, sort of how would I best explain this? It's like, uh, forgiveness is not something that you can sort of commoditize or measure, right? Like you, you, you may be in a, like in a situation where you have to forgive someone, uh, for stuff that they have done to you that you consider much worse than what you have done to them. Uh, but it's not sort of a, it's not about like equally forgiving each other. Uh, I sort of talk about it as sort of a, a well that never ends. Uh, you know, I'm like, look, like you just have this forgiveness well and you, you know, you, you have to just let it, like let it keep going and know that it's not going to drain and uh, make sure that you put that as central. You can't really, society can't move forward and in a way that is productive and we can't you know help make a better world if we're not willing to forgive and that's unfortunate that that we have to forgive in the first place because ideally we would live in a society where nothing bad happened and no one would have to forgive anyone for anything um but unfortunately that's not the case and so it might seem unjust or it might seem like unfair but what you have to remember is we live in a community and we want our community to be based on, you know, love and mutual respect and, and all the sort of good qualities of humanity. And one of the, you know, good qualities of humanity is, is, is forgiveness and moving forward. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's essential. And I'd say to people all the time, like, and I've seen acts of forgiveness that are like mind boggling. Right. Like I've seen, uh, you know, IRA members meet with the people who had put them in jail, you know, like British soldiers and stuff in part of Carmilla and other organizations that facilitated those talks and reconciliation talks. And, you know, these are people who had like we would go and sit in a bar together. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, like 10 years ago, you were trying to kill each other. And here we are now hanging out and making jokes about how you were trying to kill each other. You know, uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, if these guys can, you know, move on, forgive each other and, you know, live a normal life, even though they know what they were involved in and what the other side was more or less involved in, uh, that, that's such a compassionate act and such an incredible act that like, how can you not move forward when you see people doing stuff like that? Like, how can you not build upon like such, you know, great acts of, of humility and forgiveness. And I think that, you know, every day, like it doesn't have to be that, like we don't always need a story. I, I think I've told you guys, I'm an, an avid journaler. I love to, to write in my journal every day. Uh, and people, when I tell them, I'll say like, Oh yeah. Like when I write in my journal and they say, I, I would just have nothing to write. I don't have anything interesting to write. And I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be like groundbreakingly philosophical. Uh, you know, uh, 
the the everyday feelings and thoughts that you have are as important as anything else. And so, you know, everyday acts of forgiveness, which are hard too. I mean, often mm. the the most difficult acts of forgiveness are the ones with the people we're closest with, even if it's, you know, something silly like, uh, oh, how, how could you leave the porch light on? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes we find those harder to do than, than you know, forgiving, you know, uh, people who have had major impacts in our lives in other ways. And so, you know, it, it's, it, some people find it easy to, easier to forgive their high school bully than they do to forgive their significant other, you know? And, uh, uh, I think that, you know, just the everyday forgiveness is, is important. And those little acts of compassion, those little acts of charity and forgiveness and kindness are really what makes, the world better like people always think well we need this magical change to happen to revolutionize the world and make it better i'm like well the world will get better if we all act with compassion and forgive the the shortcomings of everybody else and treat people in the same way and like that's what i would you know tell people when we do peace and reconciliation is like you know look like these guys like their community you know have you know harmed your community your community has harmed their community like they're like that's what happened but if you don't forgive each other and, and try to move forward and build a base where you see these people as, as human you're you're just keeping this cycle going and what's the point in the cycle you know <laughs> like as you're describing that, I'm reminded of in the gospel account when Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive? And he, you know, Jesus says to him, not, not just seven times, but 77 times. And basically it's like an insurmountable amount of times. Like it's yeah. going to be a constant process for the rest of your life of forgiveness. forgiveness. So it's, it's yeah. you know, working towards a goal that in some ways is, is never going to be probably achieved in our lifetime. But it, as you mentioned, it's those simple everyday acts of forgiveness that, that do, we want to believe move mountains. Yeah. I think, I think like for every fantastic story of forgiveness, which should inspire us and should be important. Um, I think like, you know, for, you know, for every sort of, you know, Richard Moore out there uh, with his incredible story, we also have to remember and appreciate, you know, the time we forgave the person who cut us off to get a parking spot at the Walmart. You know, uh, <laughs> all of it matters. All of it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Recently, Jennifer Yip, who lives in Singapore, raised her monthly giving level for the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Because of that, she gets to ask a question and that we will do our best to answer you know, about some issue that is weighing heavily on her mind and heart. Her question is, how do we care for people who are living in homelessness, especially during this time? Our answer is this. And we know it's, you know, not complete and, 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 and not perfect, but it's, we hope it's a start. 
without a doubt, Jennifer, people living in homelessness are some of the most marginalized, forgotten, and, and vulnerable people within this global pandemic. You know, in the building in which our office is located in Pennsylvania, the overnight shelter for women experiencing homelessness, which was housed in our building, was closed this year before winter's end due to the spread of COVID-19. We know that many shelters have been shuttered in order to physically distance overnight residents. But then those residents, sadly, are thrust into the open with often no safe place to go. There's that physical vulnerability. And then there's also the social and emotional vulnerability and the isolation that is only exacerbated when things like this happen. We see that tons and tons of food and milk and other nutritional staples of life are having to be destroyed around our country, are thrown away because of this economic downturn. We believe that one way to help people who are hungry, which includes those living in homelessness, is to create means to redirect that food to food banks and soup kitchens and other places where they can receive the nutritional assistance they need. There does not need to be a nutritional crisis. There is enough food for everyone. It's truly a matter of will and distribution. Socially, it is imperative for those who supply food in whatever places and means possible to have the belief that everyone does matter, that those who are so marginalized need to see and feel and know that others do care about them, that they have safe places to eat, to sleep, and to be heard. It is to listen to them without judgment or fixing when they have something to say and to share. It is to be the presence of respect and grace and love to those who are without a home, a roof over their heads. It is to make a difference in their lives by very simply treating them with such love, setting the stage for it to break through the hearts of those who need to be loved like never before. And it is to advocate for them to our elected social, community, spiritual, and medical leaders who can also help to be instruments of compassion and grace for those who are so vulnerable in our midst. We wanted to give you a real life example of how we've seen and felt the impact of this virus on those experiencing homelessness. Michael and I were working at our office in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the day that the governor of our state made the decision to do a statewide shutdown of all non-essential businesses. That day we had needed to run to the bank and to the post office that is just a few blocks away from our office. As we were walking past the Pennsylvania State Capitol building where the governor's office resides, there was a man on the Capitol steps who engaged us in conversation. He said that he was a homeless veteran. The city looked like a ghost town that day. We could see and feel how much the governor's decision was impacting him and the rest of the city already that day. With just a few words and a simple acknowledgement of our shared common humanity, he immediately spoke up and said, this virus is really affecting all of us, especially those, who us, those of us who are homeless. We just received word that the homeless shelter where I typically rest each night is closing. I'm not sure what this will mean for me and for us, 
The one thing we can be grateful for is that it is now spring instead of being in the middle of winter. We often say that the best listening doesn't try to rush in and fix other people's problems or situations or project our own thoughts and opinions without first listening to other people's. We also talk about how listening does create connection and that day we created connection with that man even though we didn't have a magic pill or a cure to offer to him. We said we were deeply sorry, we fostered empathy, we did our very best to feel his confusion and sorrow, we gave him what we had in that moment, we gave him ourselves, reminding him that he and all of humanity would face this together. Once your PhD work is done, uh, Connor, what do you hope to do? Once you're out of school, or, or have you <laughs> have you not even considered that, or don't you want to consider that yet? Uh, I want to consider it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's coming slowly but surely, but it's coming. Uh, the PhD will will be finished, I hope, by December. Um, I mean, it, so it's hard because there's a lot of things that like I'm passionate about and work in different ways. And so I think I would love to be in academia because I like talking to young people, helping them discover their sort of intellectual trajectory and talk and challenging them on presumptions that they have about history. One of my favorite classes to teach um, is, you know, sort of the modern American history class that I've te I teach today or not right now but that I've normally taught and it's been fascinating for me to show people uh recently some a movie, or a tv show came out called um Mrs. America and I don't know if you guys have seen that yet uh but it's with uh it's a show about the equal rights amendment and both the the glorious the Gloria Steinem sort of pro equal rights amendment people and also like the Phyllis Schlafly um, anti-Equal Rights Amendment Stop ERA people. Uh, and it, I always teach my students about that in class to show them, you know, uh, what the intellectual ideas of both of these people were and have them, you know, just like think it through and, and challenge themselves to, to talk about difficult issues and so I really enjoy teaching and helping young people so that's one avenue that I think is really interesting and I also love sort of working in policy and as you guys know I I often work uh, in sort of policy avenues with uh, foreign policy research or you know with the uh, World House at, at Penn that you know it ends up with me that's uh, working class kid from Belfast having dinner with John Kerry, uh, you know, uh, uh, Amazing. and just being like, Hey, um, we have very different lives. How is being a billionaire? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so like, I also like policy and would like to do stuff like that. But then I think with policy, what I find is that, one of the things I like to do with policy is just like try to help 
people move in a direction that I think is building a more inclusive, more compassionate community. And the more I've sort of been here in America doing my PhD, dealing with my own issues, um, I have realized that, you know, maybe policy isn't the direction I want to go there. And more recently, like coming on board with someone to tell it to, for example, that would be like incredible to me if I could teach young people and then also help someone to tell it to grow into a national and an international organization. You know, that like, I think that the movement is so important and in a world where we're seeing increasing polarization, increasing anger and resentment and increasing loneliness and depression, uh, right? The, the irony of the modern world is that we are more connected than we have ever been and also more lonely than we have ever been. Uh, where'd, you, where'd you first hear that? You guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're speaking, you're speaking our language. And we, yeah, really, yeah. we really value that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah your <laughs> check will be in the mail later. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, but, Don't hold your breath, though. <laughs> but, but I think, like, you know, like, as you guys, you guys talk about it all the time, and I think that it's so true. And when you see the story of someone to tell it to, um, obviously you guys have talked about it in the podcast and obviously me working with someone to tell it to has been such an incredible pleasure. But when I look at my life and I look at, you know, the things that I've done in peace work and the people who have inspired me like Alec Reed or, or Ray Davey, like I, I think someone to tell it to is, is, even more powerful than any of that you know i think that someone to, to transcend all borders classes you know anything the gender sexuality all of it like everybody in the world needs to be listened to needs to feel someone who cares about them and has sort of a compassionate worldview and if we can make someone tell to a, a global organization that would be part of my ideal is teaching and then also working in, in that sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, even in an article that as we were preparing for this, I, I was reading just about how the, the fact that Northern Ireland in particular is still in, in immense tr trauma mm -hmm. as a result of the troubles and the region has the high, it, it said in this article that has the highest suicide rate in the UK. Uh, and yeah, and it, I know it, that you, we've talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. Like in any conflict zone, like the suicide rate apparently in, in Northern Ireland is higher than, you know, in Israel, Palestine, and, you know, in many other places, uh, 5,000 people have died in the 20 years since the troubles have been over, which is more than the 3,500 people who died in the 30 years of a war. Uh, and that's from suicide exclusively. Uh, so like people who died by suicide, we've had more people die by suicide than have been victims of a war. And so I'll say to people like we're like a friend of mine is a professional boxer, Michael Conlon. He's a, uh, he, he and I grew up in the same neighborhood. We went to the same school. He and I wrote an article together and it was basically about how he can use his platform as a boxer to help combat this plague on our community you know and uh and i think that it's not just our community but uh around the world like you guys said 
um, you know, in America, when I was doing some research for policy stuff uh, on mental health and healthcare, I found that one in four young people, like one in four people in high school in America, in in Pennsylvania specifically, had had thought about or contemplated suicide. You know, and that that world is just not a world that I think we should settle for. You know, and I think that someone to tell to has that answer. And I think you guys have, have had that answer for a long time. And hopefully we can, you know, bring that to everybody. You know, one of the things that we did together, uh, I think it was in the fall. And forgive me if I can't remember the timeline, but we went and saw the movie Joker together. Yeah, And it's not a movie that probably any of us would have normally have chosen to go very violent and just as an FYI for everybody who's listening. But uh, the the storyline is very, very timely in the sense. And, and we've often said just the importance of sometimes just feeling things deeply in our bones, like in our deeply in our bowels. You know, that's where the word compassion comes from, actually, is to feel deeply within our bowels and sometimes you just need to really feel things. And it was good for us to go together to see that movie, to feel it deeply within our bowels of just to be reminded again of why we are part of this global listening movement and, and the need for it. Because those feelings hopefully just evoke in all of us action to, yeah. to keep moving. But I, re I remember that, uh, that, that afternoon and we, then the three of us sat in the car in a, in a movie theater parking lot, not something in movie theaters aren't something we anybody can do right now. But uh, yeah. remember the good old days when, when we could. But we sat in the parking lot, not wanting to separate from one another. I think, yeah, because the, of the power of the movie and what it uh, provoked in us, the feelings and the thoughts and the images um, about loneliness and about what loneliness can do uh, to people and cause, cause them to be violent, cause them to, to, to hurt other people, cause them to hurt themselves. Um, and, and just remember, it was just also very powerful us sitting together for quite a while and talking about what we heard, what we saw, what we felt, and uh, just the images that, that it evoked in us and yeah that was a that was a meaningful afternoon together that we appreciated very much and one that we won't forget easily in fact i just real real quick just as a disclaimer encourage people to um to go to our website someone to tell org and and look under our blogs from last year and we did a three-part series i remember on on what that 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 film did to to all of us and uh, it was it was it was it was meaningful for us to get our, our thoughts down on paper. Yeah, I I, uh, I have a few things on on this movie that I want to mention quickly, which is the first one is you know to anyone watching this twenty years from now in a post COVID world, a movie theater or as a cinema as I would call them was this big room with like many seats that everyone <laughs> met together. For all these people who will never know this, right? Yeah. <laughs> for all of you who, who will never have had the experience of a movie theater and how it's about it in history books, I just want you to know that it's this big, massive room 
with one giant screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's the first thing I want to say. But two is that, yeah, like I remember hearing about that movie and I love comic book shows and comic book uh, uh, sort of movies. Uh, but I remember seeing that movie and I, I we, we've talked about this and obviously uh, we haven't talked about it on this podcast, but on my, my personal journey is that I, I, I have uh, OCD, which includes a lot of intrusive thoughts and worries. And I was like, I can't go watch this movie because it's too violent and I'll be like stuck with these thoughts for weeks or whatever. And so I told you guys about it because I was like, hey, like <laughs> this looks like a, a movie that might be good for you guys. And you guys were like, I don't like violent movies either. And so it <laughs> <laughs> was a vulnerable moment for all of us. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that none of us wanted to go, but yet we, but yet we knew we needed to. Yeah, and I think one of and the reason I brought that up is is that I uh, I think that was one of the times and I've never said this to you guys uh, before this, so this will be the first time you're hearing it. Is that that was one of the times that I was you know convinced of the mission and of you guys because uh, I was sitting there, all three of us, uh, and none of us really wanted to be in this violent and overly scary movie. Uh, but we all knew that one, it would be good to see it together and be vulnerable in that sense. And that two, it was good for someone to tell it to, to read uh, or to learn about this movie and this phenomenon and be able to talk to people about it. And so we, it was putting your personal worries and your personal vulnerabilities aside for a greater mission. And I was like, this is incredibly powerful when you think about it and this is just like i said to you guys before it's the everyday stuff that you have like that we live that is often the most powerful and so to you guys it, it was just you know going to the cinema with me to watch a scary movie you know but for me i was like well this is them living the mission like this is like this is it in action you're being vulnerable like you say like we like what's on our website and you're doing something for the, the the rest of the world that involves putting yourself in a situation that isn't always comfortable but you know is for you know contacting other people to talk to them through the blog you know saying to them like hey this is what we thought this is social isolation this is mental health issues and you know that blog series was incredibly powerful in that sense well thank you we never well, we never thought of going to the movie in the way you had. So we, we appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. You know, and just come in full circle. I mean, this is exactly why we do these podcast episodes as well is for people like Connor to be able to tell their stories for us to tell our stories. And I know in one of these blogs, and we also use this quote in our, in our second book, uh, someone to tell to moved with compassion. And I wanted to share it today for our listeners uh, and then kind of, again, come full circle here uh, of just this topic of vulnerability and openness and the need to have someone to tell it to. And it comes from Meredith Gray. And she said, people have scars in all sorts of unexpected places, like secret roadmaps of their personal histories, diagrams of all their old wounds. Most of our, our, our wounds heal, leaving nothing behind but a scar but some of them don't. Some wounds we carry with us everywhere 
And though the cut's long gone, the pain still lingers. And Connor, today we, we know that there's a lot of pain still that we could spend, we'll, we will spend a lifetime with you unpacking uh, as us about our own. And it's just a good reminder for all of us of the need to do that, to keep processing, to keep talking. That's why this mission exists. And so for those of you who are listening, if you need to talk, we are here to listen. That's what this is all about. Um, we want to be uh, th those compassionate listeners for you. And uh, before we go, Connor, we want to give you the last word here. Uh, we've come full, full, full circle from the beginning of this um, this <laughs> podcast, and we had asked we asked you to to share with our listeners what this day was supposed to be today. It's supposed to be your wedding day. You and Leah were to be married uh, today in Dublin, Ireland, and because of COVID, you're not. Your your wedding's going to happen next year in Ireland, and uh, we're you know we hope that. There are no problems when that when that day when that day comes. So, and and we're just really sorry that it couldn't happen today the way the way you had planned it, the way you and Leah envisioned it and dreamed that it would be. So, we'll put you on the spot here. I hope it's not too too much on the spot. Is there anything no, you'd like to is anything you would like to say today to Leah? Leah about what this day um, means to you. Um. In yeah, uh, that's a good a good thing to ask again. Uh, so yeah, I think to to Leah, what I would mostly want to say is that, you know, it's unfortunate that we are not able to celebrate being in love and the rest of our life today. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't cherish her and care about her every single day, uh, and that you know when the wedding comes it'll be fantastic and it'll be beautiful and it'll be incredible to um to be able to celebrate that together with our friends and our family but she's still the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life uh regardless of uh any academic achievement or anything else i think that being together with leah is you know one of the most amazing experiences I've had because this is someone who is compassionate and empathetic and naturally uh, understands both my many shortcomings and also the shortcomings of, of, of others and acts in a way that helps those people. And so I'm, you know, I, I love her dearly and uh, when the wedding comes, it'll be great, but I, we'll we'll still cherish every moment until then <laughs> and after and yeah and and uh yeah it'll 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 eventually happen and i mean when it does that'll be perfect uh but you know i uh we can't beat the the pandemic right now but once it's done you know we'll we'll be good it's ex it's exciting time <laughs> yes. we, we've said this often lately that i know with my own kids and for all of us we're we're all of life we're always learning about adaptability just to mm -hmm. adapt to the situations <laughs> that come to us and we can't change them 
but we can do our best to overcome them as they come and we do that in community and that's that's why we're here together today and so we hope this was about as good of uh, a second option as you can get today. <laughs> there, yeah. there is, if it was not my my wedding, there is nowhere else I'd rather be than helping this mission. Uh, Thank you. Thank uh, you. Before I we do go, I mean, maybe we can put this in somewhere else. I don't know. I did want to ask you guys uh, just before we do go in terms of uh, someone to tell it to. You asked me what what my future holds, and I was wondering if you guys could tell me what you think uh, you would want people to know about someone to tell it to, and what you think you know the future holds for us. Yeah. It's our job to ask the questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> Clark will just cut all this out. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, but actually, no, actually, we appreciate that. Um, and you've, you've already answered it a bit uh, a few moments ago uh, when you said that you envisioned someone to tell it to being an organization that is global. And 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 in and in some ways, many ways, we we do have we are, we do have a global outreach uh, for the, the people in at least a dozen countries with whom we've listened to whom we've listened with whom we've listened and talked and learned, and uh, as well as across the United States, and we just want that to grow. We we want people to we want to help people realize that this there is an epidemic of loneliness. And it's global, and that in an age of great connection, technologically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, we are not very connected. In fact, might be more disconnected than we've ever been in history. And we we just we want to change that in whatever way we can, by by education, by training, by by simply listening. Uh, to show people that that is the first step in in us connecting with one another. It's the first step in helping the, to change the world, to making helping to make the world better. It's the first step in peace to peace, to reconciliation, to preventing so many of the conflicts that we have among us as human beings. Listening, we believe, is at the core the fundamental fundamental core and we want the world to know that to believe it and to live it so that's that's the, our vision mm -hmm. yeah and i wanted to say as well since we're leaving uh thank you guys for everything someone to tell to has done for me personally and also you know for what it's going to do and is already doing for people around the world. Thank you. And while we're still here, I just want to say we we if you those of you who are listening, if you like the Someone to Tell the Two podcast, if you learn from them, if you've enjoyed this episode and it's inspired you in some way and taught you something in some way, we hope that you'll consider supporting us. And in fact, we're saying this because Connor is on here right now. Connor is the one who who led us to Patreon, which is an online vehicle 
to support someone to tell it to. And Connor was our very first donor on Patreon to someone to tell it to for the Someone to Tell It To pod- podcast. So we hope that you'll go to someone to tell it to or uh, to pay- patreon.org and uh, and and maybe donate to help support these podcasts, to make them possible, to pay, to help pay Clark, our technician, who's so patient and makes us sound so much better than we are, can edits out, edits, edit, he'll edit this out now. Yeah. I can't say it right. <laughs> Who edits out everything that we mess up or say, say incorrectly or wrong and, and helps us to sound, sound good. So we hope that you'll support this. You'll support this effort. And, um, and again, we appreciate you, Connor, for for introducing us to Patreon and, and the ability to do this. And so we just uh, thank you all for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to you listening again. So thank you. Thank Bye. You.